Hi, I'm Irwin McManus. I want to welcome you to the Mosaic Podcast. I want to also bring you into some exciting things that are happening here. If you go to the Mosaic app, you will learn about our conference coming up this year, about MSC's new album and their tour across the country. And you can learn how to connect and be more involved in Mosaic in so many different ways. And by the way, we now have the Mosaic YouTube channel. And you can go access not only these talks, but other fresh and new materials that are being created specifically for that channel. And so if you want to be connected in a richer and fuller way, uh, not only be a part of the podcast, get to the Mosaic app and get to the channel, and we'll see you there. So I've been getting all kinds of questions as we continue our series on life's toughest questions, and I just want to encourage you as we go through this journey together to invite your friends, to let people know about it, to share the, the podcast, to invite people to the live stream. Uh, maybe there's some people who are not quite ready for human contact and uh, in an environment they know of as church, but, but they might be interested in connecting to us through the live stream and getting into this conversation. We just want to open this up to as many people as possible. I want to read these, some of the questions that even came this morning that um, are going to be a part of a, a, a larger narrative today. So we're going, to, we're going to journey together in a meandering sort of way through a number of questions, trying to get somewhere together. Questions that came this morning. They had a friend who was an atheist who had these two questions, and they thought the idea of life's toughest questions was a great idea. They said, what, what happens when you die? And second, why are all religions created differently, or are they all the same in the end? Another person wrote in, is God and Jesus one and the same? Why worship Jesus specifically instead of God himself? Another asked, why are there so many religions in the world? I used to feel that all the religions were basically specific cultures, ways of personifying the lessons of God as translated by their way of life. But as I learn more about Jesus and Christianity, this question grows. How do we reconcile the creation accounts in the Bible with evolution, a definite scientific discovery? Also, aliens. Please elaborate. (laughs) I love the way they signed off, I want to believe. (laughs) I'm not sure if they want to believe in aliens, in creation, or evolution, but they want to believe. (laughs) Another asks, where did God come from? This is a great question. Where did God come from? What is God's origin story? I hope you're prepared to be disappointed. We are kind of thrust into this story where God created the universe, but we didn't get the story of where he came from. Please help. Yeah, I'd like help too. Okay, and how can I truly know that God is real? It's such a broad question, but there are so many religions and gods. And and while I do have what I consider to be spiritual experiences, how can I be so sure that those are not, those are attributed to a God and not just coincidence or the human mind's need for cosmic belonging or hormones? (laughs) Could be all of those. They go on to say, I often hear you talk about God speaking to you or to others, and I haven't experienced that yet. Synchronicity and coincidence just aren't proof for me. I I hate to be that skeptic that demands proof, but I'm such a logical thinker, and I was raised by a scientific father so that these are the questions that plague me. Another writes, I don't understand the logic behind Jesus died for our sins. How and why does it grant us as the current humanity, the grace of God. Why punish Jesus, God himself, for humanity's sins? Now, this next one's really snarky, and so I thought I'd keep it. So, Irwin, I love how they address me personally. <laughs> and, uh, so I, I'm assuming you're here. <laughs> so, Irwin, if you were walking down the street with your kids, and someone jumped out of the alley with a gun and said, I'm going to shoot one of you, who's it going to be? My guess is that you'd say to the man, take me, shoot me, not my kids. What? (laughs) They've lived a good life. (laughs) He goes on to explain, but God didn't do that. He sacrificed his son. I don't get it. Interesting. A little bit of self-preservation there. And uh, Hello, Irwin, exclamation point. I know that you get tons of emails all throughout the day, but I wanted to reach out because my brother, who is an atheist, came with me to Mosaic 
this past Sunday. Wow. That was just so encouraging to me. And I want to thank you for inviting your brother. And if you're the brother, I want to thank you for coming and risking being here with us. I spoke with him about his thoughts after hearing your message. And he said he was slightly disappointed. <laughs> it's my goal. It's, I, I'm, and I'm thinking this is a huge win. I mean, when was the last time as an atheist you went to church and were only slightly disappointed? And, <laughs> but, could have been greatly disappointed, and so I'm, I'm counting that as a win. It's a huge, and he said he was slightly disappointed because one of the biggest things that he struggles with about God is natural disasters, that things that are out of our control but completely in God's control. And frankly, I thought about answering or addressing that question last week when talking about human suffering, but my talk was already an hour long, and I didn't want you not to come back this week. So I had to figure out what to leave out. I left that part out, and it had an effect on someone's life. So we're going to try to squeeze it into today's conversation. I love my brother dearly, and this is why. I love my brother dearly, and I know that he is searching for someone to be, answer, to be able to answer this question directly and detailed so that God can speak to him to help him understand. Wow. That, that for me feels overwhelming. That someone is searching and trying to make sense of life and of God. And he came and gave this an opportunity and left slightly disappointed. So I, I want to prepare you. you. Prepare for disappointment. You will be slightly disappointed. But I, I don't lose hope in that. I have this incredible confidence in the reality and wonder of God. That even if my answer is slightly disappointing, that the conversation will open up an entirely new world for you. That's why I encourage you to involve other people in this conversation. It's not that we're going to be able to answer all the questions the way everyone needs them answered. Now, I can tell you that I consider slight disappointment a huge win for me. But I do know that God in his wonder and in his love will fill the gap between what I leave unsaid and what your soul needs to hear. So we dive in. Because all these questions really center around belief, around why God, why Jesus, why the cross, why this. And and I want to take you back a little bit even to some of my own processing of how I've come to believe. Because I can tell you, I, I stand here somewhat amazed that I believe. I, I mean, for some people, belief comes easily. For other people, it's a genuine struggle. And, and, and there have been so many times I've actually stood on this platform astonished that I'm actually here advocating for God. It's unexpected even for me. And even though talking about the journey of faith is always a retrospective, you don't really remember your journey once you've come to know God the way you experienced it before you came to know God. Things start attaching themselves to it. Because once you begin to see reality through the filter of God, it's impossible to go back and see it another way. But I do want to take you on this journey with me, and, and, and hopefully we'll begin with the broad questions that we heard and move all the way to the very specific questions. From how can we believe in God when there are natural disasters to why would God allow the disaster of the cross to take place? Well, if we just break it down in a simple framework, we have two options, I suppose, There is a God and there's not a God. God and no God. And so many of the people I talk to nowadays have actually chosen a very, very specific position to say, I'm an atheist. I don't believe there is a God. Now, there are others who are scientific, but they would say they just don't know. They're atheists or maybe they would say they're indifferent. But what I find is that many times a person who says there is no God has has a more intense emotional relationship to the idea of God. 
It's very odd that a person would spend their life warring against something that does not exist. And I don't mean to demean that. What I mean is that there's something profound and deep going on in the person who does not believe in God. So I'm not trying to demean that at all. What I'm actually saying is that it's more important, more significant, and it's more vitriol than we perhaps perceive at first. And it plays out in, in the realm of intelligence and intellect and logic, but it's, it's far more profound than that. And so if you just begin here and say, well, you, you, you can see the universe as created by God or see the universe as created outside of God, but I, I don't want us to get confused because what happens a lot of times is people say there's no God, and so what you do is you put science there. You go, okay, the world view of no God, that's the world of science, and the world view of God, that's the world of, of faith. And so then we see science and faith in conflict with each other, but any thinking person who has a genuine faith knows that there is really no conflict between science and faith. That, 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 that's actually not a real dilemma. The, the real conflict is not between science and faith. The dilemma, the conflict, is between superstition and philosophy. Because what science is really good at is answering most of the questions that humans ask. Science really focuses on the how. How does everything happen? How does the universe work? How does gravity work? How, how does this atmosphere come to be? And, and, and around the word how, or the question of how, we can ask the questions like what, and where, and when. And whenever you're dealing with these questions of how, what, where, when, those are scientific questions. You can actually study and observe and determine. But once you move into the other human questions of who and why, you move out of science and you move into philosophy. Because once you start asking the question of who and why from a perspective that there's no God, from a scientific perspective, you've moved out of science into philosophy, which is perfectly fine. I have a philosophy degree. That's my background. I, I love the study of philosophy. It's the study of wisdom. But what we need to realize is that the questions of who and why are not questions that can really be adequately addressed by science. It doesn't mean they can be adequately addressed by faith, by the way. It just means that they don't belong over here. They belong over here. These are the questions that drive us. And what I think is interesting is that human beings seem to be more predisposed to ask who and why than what, how, when, and where. Well, one of the questions that was asked, of course, connected to all this, is how in the world can we actually believe in creation as opposed to evolution? What I think is interesting is that evolution really lends itself toward these questions of how, when, where, and what. Like, what ate him? What time? Where did it come from? How did you get away? Right? When does it eat? There, these are evolutionary questions to survive. But the questions of, of who and why are not even good evolutionary questions. And if you have had children you know that children should actually be asking how and not why. See, at two years old, you would give anything to have your little child going, how do I determine when I'm about to have a bowel movement? <laughs> how can I learn to hold it until I run to the potty and train myself? Wouldn't it be great if your kids all asked the right questions? But they don't ask that. They don't ask the questions that are so important. Well, well, when should I go to sleep so it's healthiest for me? <laughs> Where's the mop so I can clean the house? They don't ask those kinds of questions. <laughs> what can I do to be a positive contributor to the family? They don't ask that. <laughs> Who's cooking me dinner? That's a really big question. And when they're two, they ask the question, why, 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 why? At two, they don't need to know why. 
They're not answering any deep philosophical questions. Their life is not on the line because they don't understand the big why. But you, don't, you will not have your kids drive you insane by going, how, how, how? They don't ask you, how does this car run? They don't ask you, how does this work? They don't ask you, how did you make your money? They ask you, why, 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 why? And you'll try to answer that question a thousand times because when you have a first child, you're so patient. You think that the why is so inquisitive, it's so darling, until they just keep asking, why? Why do I have to go to bed? Why does does it have to be nine o'clock? Why do I need to sleep? Why would it make me tired in the morning? Why are you doing this? And finally, you just give up and say, because I told you so which is how we see God relating to the world. See, the why is not an evolutionary question. The why is a question that we should have evolved out of, but it's actually the why that drives everything about being human. And so we we have a conflict that can be between superstition and philosophy, because by the way, truth does not belong to science. Truth belongs to us all. Truth belongs to everyone who's willing to pursue it. And sometimes science finds the truth and sometimes faith does. And sometimes we all betray it. But a part of the power of faith is its pursuit of the truth. And we need to learn to distinguish between the two. So I have to go back and go, okay, I, I either can believe there is no God or there is a God. And it will shape the way I see reality. And one of the things that I came to realize is that a view that there is no God doesn't really explain for me my best understanding of what it is to be human. And I I love Hockham's razor that says that the simplest answer is usually the one that's right. And so I just want to lay out to you why I think it's actually more logical to believe in God than it is to not believe in God. Because one of the questions were, is how can I believe in God? I was raised to be logical. I was raised by a scientific father. And I want you to realize that believing in God is no less logical than not believing in God. And not believing in God is no more logical than believing in God. And I know how we do it because I, I just, disclaimer, I know there are really dumb people who believe in God. I don't mean uneducated, I just mean dumb. You know, people go, oh, I wish they didn't say that. You ever heard people talk about God and you're embarrassed because you belong to that team? You're like, oh, man. And in that moment, you're like, I. Not me, not me, I'm, I'm tapping out. So I'm just saying, there are a lot of people who talk about God, and I just think, wow, that's just really dumb. And I feel embarrassed. I, I'm dumb by association. And usually it's in contrast to a really intelligent person who does not believe in God. You're like, yep, that's the problem. Super smart people over here don't believe in God. Super dumb people do believe in God. What do I do? So let's not talk about anything that requires intelligence. Let's just keep in the category of faith. But I have great news for you. There are dumb people who believe there is no God. I don't know. It's just reassuring. (laughs) But there are also really smart people who believe there is a God. And, and, And so this is a part of the dilemma. Is that intelligence doesn't seem to be the pathway to leading to a sure conclusion. When you don't believe there is a God, and Stephen Hawking would would agree with this, you have a a certain view of the universe, that the universe is determined. That the universe is about cause, and that the universe is mathematical. And so there's also certain implications to that, which means that there is no free will, that free will is an illusion, that there is no creative act, and that there's nothing spiritual, that the whole universe is material. And so when I look at that, I go, okay, that's one view of reality. Over here, what we're told is that there is a God. Then the universe is not mathematical. The universe is relational. And that if there is a creator and he created us in his image and likeness, then there is creativity. There is free will. And there is choice that affects the future. 
Now, frankly, sometimes you just have to make a decision that says, this makes more sense to me. So I'm just going to be honest here. This makes more sense to me. A universe where there is creativity, where there's free will, where our choices create the future rather than a fatalistic, deterministic future makes more sense to me. Then this idea that the universe is simply mathematical, that everything is already determined, that there is no creativity, no spirituality, no free will, because everything is just the result of cause and effect. So for me, I immediately move toward God. Then, then you have this issue of, well, what about creation? So I'm going to just step back just for a second, because some of the questions were like, how can you believe in creation and not in evolution? I don't even know how that's still a question today. To be honest with you, I, I, I'm so embarrassed. And I know there's a reason for that. It's because sometimes we actually think we believe what the Bible teaches, but we didn't stop to read the Bible. And I'm going to say this, I know it's going to be disturbing to some of you, but the Bible does not teach that the universe was created in six days. It does not teach that. But we've taught that, and so many people actually believe that. You see, a thinking person who's a scientist, who's trying to understand how everything comes together, Here's that we say that everything was created in six days, and we think that six 24-hour days, they think we're out of our minds. And I know people that I respect that I may even be related to <laughs> who believe that everything's created in six days and 24 hours. And I'm saying that that is absolutely possible, but it's not biblical. That's a different thing. See, I, I, I checked it this morning. I asked Siri just to confirm... <laughs> And Siri explained to me that a day is the time it takes for the earth, for one rotation of earth in relationship to the sun. That's a day. So it's 24 hours more or less here. But if you go to Scandinavia, it takes six months for day to become night. So even on this planet, in this time of history, 24 hours is not a consistent reality. There are places where you have day. And then night. Years ago when we went to Sweden, we were there for a week and we never saw a second of night. And so when we talk about 724, we have such an ethnocentric, culture-centric view of the Bible. Even if we live today, we could say, well, it's at least six months. But on top of that, there's another dilemma. It's just a small detail that makes things a little bit confusing. The sun was not created until day four. <laughs> so you, you cannot have a day where the earth rotates one time in relation to the sun when there's no sun to relate to. And by the way, a year is the earth revolving around the sun which cannot happen until there is a sun. So you can't revolve around the sun if the sun isn't around. <laughs> so people start counting history even when the scriptures leave it in mystery. Saying on day four, the sun is created. Time doesn't even begin to be a factor until day four. That's almost all the way through creation. And then we don't even exist till day six. And God isn't limited by time. He didn't need time. We are the ones who live in this construct called time. So actually time didn't even begin until the sixth day. But we start adding it up as if everything is superimposed by what we experience now. So I want to be really, really clear. Up to day four could have lasted a trillion years. Because to God, a day is like a thousand years. It could have taken millions of years for the first four movements to take place. And it would be completely accurate in relationship to the Bible. And, and then we act like it's 24 hours once Adam and Eve are there. And of course God rested on the seventh day for a full 24 hours. That seventh day could have lasted thousands of years. That day of rest, it might have been a description of what life was like on this planet when the relationship with God was good. Yeah. I think it lasted more than a day. 
And by the way, the way we read it, there's Adam and Eve, then there's Abel and Cain. And then Cain kills his brother Abel, so half the world's population was killed. <laughs> Boom. And we get really confused because when Cain kills his brother Abel, there are not supposed to be any more people on earth. And Cain says to God, if you drive me out, everybody's going to want to kill me. Who's everybody? <laughs> he starts going out from cities. Where do they come from? How is it even possible that all this evolved with no time? And it's funny the way we project on the story. There's the sixth day, God creates us. The seventh day, we rested. And on the eighth day, we blew it. <laughs> we act like we didn't even enjoy God's creation for five minutes before we blew it all up. It doesn't even occur to us that thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years could have existed, could have happened, could have passed before the story of Abel and Cain. See, I don't think Abel and Cain is the story of Adam and Eve's first children. I think it's the story of humanity's self-destructive nature. And that they had many, many children before that. It's the only way you can explain that the earth was already populated. So I'm just going to go here and just say for a moment, please don't reject God because we're dumb. Because we can't distinguish between superstition and faith. Because we believe more what we've been told than what we actually can read. What the scriptures tell us is that God created everything. And this is important because the evolution talks about process. And I think it's exciting to study process. I think it was exactly right for Darwin to study process. But creation talks about purpose. Why we're created. And so the creation is about intention. Why are we here? See, if God created the universe, then there is intention. But if God did not create the universe, then there is randomness. And you know what's really odd? When we feel that life is random, something inside of us moves into chaos. See, we get angry with God when random things happen to us that create suffering. Why doesn't randomness feel natural to us, but intention is something we long for? So now to the question of creation. Tsunamis, earthquakes, hurricanes. Let me address your slight disappointment. You see, I actually wanted to answer that question or at least address it. Because I think it's an important question as well. Because when we look at the universe, we somehow strangely draw conclusions about God. Isn't that odd? That we actually draw conclusions about God's character, or even God's existence based on how the universe is operating. Why would we do that? Let's listen to what it says in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, and then Romans 8, 18. It says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. What the scriptures are actually telling us is that the universe points to God. You're exactly right. That even natural disasters, if there is a God, should tell us something about who God is. And so somehow, the universe tells us about God. And I think it's interesting that a lot of people acknowledge that the universe has intention toward them, but they do not acknowledge the existence of God. But the universe would not have intention if God was not intentional. The universe would not have purpose if God were not purposeful. But listen to what it says here. It says the entire universe reveals God's qualities, his, his eternal power and divine nature, so that what is to be known about him can be completely understood by us. In fact, what the scriptures tell us is that if we stop and look at creation, we will be without excuse in our knowledge of God. This is the language of God. I've had people ask me, why doesn't God speak in a simple language? 
Well, God's language is creation. In Romans 8, verses 18 to 23, it says, this is important. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So he's talking about our suffering. And I want you to see how he talks, how he connects human suffering to natural disasters. This is really, I think, significant. It says, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. I'll explain that in a minute. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship and redemption of our bodies. Now, I, okay, this is going to be kind of out there, but I want you to go with me. What the Bible actually teaches, what the Scriptures teach us, is that one singular act can have massive effect and have ramifications that literally become cosmic. Now, I know this is crazy, that one act in Africa can affect the well-being of creation in Antarctica. See, I, I know this is absurd. It, it's, it's almost like science fiction that our emissions could actually create a hole in the ozone. Because the Bible didn't know about quantum mechanics. The Bible didn't know about complexity theory. The Bible did not understand these things. This is way before. This is all a surprise to God. That, that a small choice here can have a cosmic effect. Have you ever noticed that you don't really understand what's wrong with you until you see it played out in your relationships? Now, let's be honest. Have you ever anybody say to you, man, you are so arrogant? You go, what are you talking about? I'm awesome. <laughs> you ever have people speak into your life and you just do not see it? What's wrong with them? See, you don't even know you have issues until those issues translate into human relationships. You don't understand you're selfish until your selfishness begins to affect the relationships in your life. You don't really even see you're greedy until it begins to have an effect on other people's lives. You don't actually know the content of what is in you until you see it translated into the world that's outside of you. And that's how you can know. That's how you can know a person's healthy on the inside is because they have healthy relationships on the outside. You can know what's happening in the universe inside of you because you're literally affecting the universe outside of you. And that's exactly what the scriptures have said. But even on a more cosmic level, what the scriptures are telling us is that all creation is affected by our brokenness. That our souls are groaning for their redemption. Your soul knows there's something wrong with you. My soul knows there's something wrong with me. There's something broken in me. My soul knows that it, that it needs a connection that is bigger than myself. And it's translated because I see it in everyday life. I see it in my relationships. I see it in my choices. I see it in the life I've lived. And, and I can actually see when I make choices that are related to God that I create a better world because there's a better me. And I create a more destructive world when there's a more destructive me. And, and what the scriptures are telling us is that the entire universe is groaning for its redemption. That when we severed our relationship with God, that this literally created a seismic effect. And the entire universe is groaning now for its redemption as well. And the earthquakes and tsunamis and hurricanes are all the external expression in creation of the devastation of the universe within us. We can see this on a human level. We know there's something wrong with us because there's war and violence. We know there's something intrinsically wrong with us when you have poverty and greed at the same time. We somehow know that something is broken inside of us when there's betrayal, when there's deceit. 
but it has never occurred to us that our actions might actually affect creation. <laughs> there are people who are even now going, human actions don't have any effect on the environment. But waters do not pollute themselves. And we live in a world where we can see our, our air, but we can't breathe it. And the choices we make actually affect the creation in which we live. And what the scriptures tell us is that we would not even acknowledge the brokenness of our souls if we did not see the brokenness of creation. So when we ask the question, what happens when we die? See, even that question goes back to the why. This is not a science question. And really the answer is who cares? If there is no God, who cares what happens to us when we die? But there's something strange about being human. Your body is in decay, but your soul longs to live. And so we fight and we fight and we fight not to die because we're terrified of non-existence. Why would we actually imagine something that is eternal? Even the idea of God. So you ask me the question, what's God's backstory? That's a great Hollywood question. Where did God come from? What's his story? And this could lead us to not believe in God, right? Because we don't know God's backstory. Where did God come from? When I was a kid, I would literally have migraines asking myself the question, where did God come from? And if you see that as a reason to not believe in God, I have really, really bad news for you. If you come to conclude there is no God because we don't have any backstory, because how can God always exist? Right? How can there be a being that wasn't created, that, that, that has always been? And what does that mean to always be? That's outside of our comprehension because we exist. We begin, we end. How, how can we even conceptualize God? Here's, here's even, you know what's really troubling? If there's no God, there's still something that existed that we can't explain. See, if there's no God, everything came from nothing. Where did that nothing come from? What was that nothing? Wait a minute. If, it's, if that nothing is something, it wasn't nothing. It was something. And, and what's the nothing's backstory? What was it doing before it was something? Nothing? I, 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 what? <laughs> if you think it's going to give you a headache to try to figure out where God came from, try to figure out where nothing came from. <laughs> and how one day, nothing thought to itself, I should... Do something. <laughs> and, and I think it's interesting that we think that God, that faith is synchronicity, that it's coincidence, that it's believing in superstition. The idea that nothing could somehow motivate itself to do something, that's synchronicity. That's serendipity. That's coincidence. That's fantasy. And so the scriptures tell us that all of creation groans. Why? Because the scriptures tell us that the entire universe is relational. It is not about data. It is about relationship. See, if there is no God, and what we live in is a natural order, where everything simply evolves, then behind that evolution, behind that naturalism, is simply math. If there is no God, then the driving force of the universe is math. But if there is a God, and the universe is relational, then the driving force of the universe is love. And I can tell you this, you will not spend your whole life searching for math. but you will spend your whole life searching for love. To understand the universe to be random, accidental, to me requires far more faith 
than to believe that the universe is intentional and relational. It makes more sense to me. Even in the interaction as a human being, in the way we come to understand ourselves, even in the questions we ask, even in the things we long for and crave, we long for the things that point us back to God. Because it's not just the universe that groans, it's our souls who groan as well. When Jesus was walking on this earth, he he made things difficult at times. In John chapter 6, Jesus had just been teaching, and he used a metaphor. He said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part in me. And that didn't go well. It didn't go well. He he sounded like a cannibal and made people nervous. (laughs) He was talking to a lot of really literal, concrete people. On hearing this, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. I love that. (laughs) Who can accept it? Uh, Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them would not believe and which would betray him. And he went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Do you want to leave too? Do you? Jesus asked the 12. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. I think this interaction is one of the most significant ones in the scriptures because one of the questions that comes out of this is, okay, if there is a God and God is relational and the universe is created by intention, and so the driving principle of the universe is love, as opposed to the universe being accidental, driven by mathematics, determined with no creativity, no free will. And what the scriptures tell us is that actually reality is spirit, which, by the way, matches more our understanding of the universe now, because the world without God said the reality was material, But I think this is antiquated mythology. Because we saw the world as material when we thought that matter and energy were different. But now we know that matter is just energy. Reorganizing itself through its own unique intelligence. And so the same energy that's in a rock is also in a gazelle. And the same energy that's in a river is in you. The same energies in the universe as in an infant. And that should blow your mind and cause you to have great faith. And as we look at this, we have to then, we go ask the question, okay, if there's a God and he's intentional and relational and the universe is spirit, then aren't all religions okay? Aren't they all the same? And I understand, I I think, the well-intentioned behind this. But I've never been a big fan of religion. And I've gotten myself in huge trouble because of my views of religion. I've been misquoted so much in my life. And years ago, I was quoted as saying that the greatest enemy to the movement of Jesus was Christianity. I, I did say that. And, uh, <laughs> and, and I wrote it. And uh, so, but, but you, what I was actually saying is this, is that Christianity as a religion is no different than every other religion. That, you see, what religions tell us is that God is up here. And we have to find a way to get to God. Because we don't get to God because we think he's a good idea. Somehow the human spirit knows that where there is God, there is life. And we're trying to get to life. That's what we're trying to get to. And so we call life God. And we're trying to get to God because we want to live. And so there are different religions, whether it's Hinduism or Buddhism or Islam or Christianity that give you steps to get to God. They give you practices, rituals. They tell you to pray seven times or to go through different acts of penance or to pray different prayers. And the way we understand this about God is that it's, it's just like this global cosmic smackdown. No! 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 So here we are, we're trying to get to God's like, no! Not gonna happen! 
I don't care how hard you try. And I, I've talked to my friends who are Muslim, and I, and I said, you're a devout Muslim. They go, yes. And, and I said, will you be with Allah when you die? And he said, only Allah knows. So it's a tricky thing, because only Allah knows. When I talk to my friends who are Buddhists, they go, well, you know, the, the, the path to enlightenment is a very difficult path. And, and Americans think reincarnation is like a, a joy ride. Oh, I get to come back as someone else. You do not come back as Sean Connery. You, you, <laughs> that's, that's not the core tenets of Buddhism. Reincarnation is a punishment that you're trying to break free from, to move toward nothingness so that you can lose all your uniqueness. And every religion finds a way to get to God, whether it's Christianity or Catholicism or Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism, whatever it is. And so when people say, isn't Jesus just the same as all those other religions? The answer is no. You don't have to choose to believe in Jesus, but I want you to separate him from religion because the problem is that Jesus has been put into this sphere of religions of a way to get to God. But all these religions teach you how to get to life, how to get to God, how to get to enlightenment. But the message of Jesus is the exact opposite. He's not teaching us how we can get to God. He's teaching us how God got to us. And so as you're processing things and trying to make sense of this, you go, okay, Erwin, I can go with you to God because I've had people tell me that. I've had friends go, okay, I came here, I didn't believe in God, but now I believe in God, but I'm having a hard time believing in Jesus. But I want you to know if God exists and God is relational and God is intentional and God is love, then Jesus makes perfect sense. And God is the name I use when I talk about me searching for him. But Jesus is the name I use when I talk about God searching for me. So I want you to realize is that when you use the name God, because people say, well, why can't I just pray to God and not to Jesus? It, because when we talk about God, it's as if we're seeing the back of God's head. But when God turns around and makes eye contact with you, you'll know his name is Jesus. And just from a more like metaphysical understanding of God. People go, well, how can God be like three persons? I think it's fascinating that the scriptures tell us that God is light. And we know that nothing can move at the speed of light. light. And, and when you think about God moving at the speed of light, and that all matter, think about this, all matter is energy slowing down. So if you want to understand it from a from more like metaphysical perspective, Jesus is God slowing down to our speed. And when God takes on our speed, our meter, our frequency, he takes on flesh and blood. I'm so glad that God didn't want to move so fast. He was willing to leave us behind. I remember when Aaron was just a little boy and he was walking with me on some trip and I was walking really fast and, and he couldn't keep up. And finally he said, Daddy, Daddy, wait for me, wait for me. And I was a little frustrated because I was late and I was trying to get somewhere. And he was just moving along with his little legs and just doing everything he could. Sometimes I'd have his hand and he'd sort of like almost be flying because I'd be pulling him along. And he was just so tired. He goes, Daddy, wait for me. And I saw it. I realized that, that there was going to be a day where I was going to be the one that couldn't keep up with him. And if I taught him to, that I never waited for him, there would be a day where he would never wait for me. And I remember I knelt down in the middle of that street and I just made eye contact and I said, hey, buddy, I'm so sorry for going so fast. I'm going to slow down to go your speed. And I told him this when he was like five years old. But I want you to remember this day. So when I cannot keep up with you, (laughs) you will wait for me. See, a lot of people go, why doesn't God just fix all this? Why doesn't God just start all over again? Do you realize that the only way God could fix all the problems of the world is by eliminating us? 
and starting over again. And I am so glad that as our Father, God is willing to kneel down and make eye contact with us and say, you know, I'm going to slow down to teach you how to walk with me. When you ask why the cross, oh, and I love that question. If you're walking down the street and a guy holds you up at gunpoint, and he says, one of you is going to die. As a dad, you'd say, kill me, not my son. See, the, the metaphor sounds right, except for one thing. You think that we are the victims, that God would be the victim. See, when God was held up at gunpoint, he wasn't afraid. He wasn't afraid for his life, and he wasn't afraid for his son's life. He wasn't trying to save his life or his son's life. He was trying to save the gunman. And so he let his son die so that he could rise again so that the man who pulled the trigger could put the gun down and follow the one who died for him and rose again. See, I think a lot of us keep trying to shoot God and we try to keep putting God in the grave, but he keeps rising again and again and again. How is it possible that we've become so educated, so advanced, and yet we haven't evolved out of our need for God? Maybe it's because you were created in the image and likeness of God, and your soul knows where it belongs. Thank you so much for joining us on the Mosaic Podcast. I want to encourage you to take the message you've just received, allow it to go deeply into your soul, to allow Jesus to do the deep work that only he can do. And I also want to encourage you to be a part of what we're doing here at Mosaic, to go to the Mosaic app and to become a part of the Mosaic Foundation, to become a regular giver and investor in bringing this message across the world. I want to thank you so much for being here with us. God bless you.